We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. So, Ax, good morning. I hear you're testifying. Something going on on Capitol Hill tomorrow. Fill me in. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm offering all my testifying right here. All my testimony is here. Man, we In should, the church of what's you, happening now. If you're really on top of things, you should have two hacks on tap a day, uh, given the way things are going <laughs> here. We've got new – whoever thought we'd be talking about new candidates in uh, – in November before the, Unbelievable. the caucuses. We're going to get there, but we have to. We should make a bow to the impeachment hearings because they are historic, only the fourth time in history. Right. Everyone's going to be talking about them. I don't think we need to chew over the substance of it because you can get that anywhere. But, I, you know, I want to I mix something in here because you and I have been having this argument as to whether Republicans will see their duty – uh, and do it. I've been watching this parade of Republicans sort of auditioning crazy arguments, hoping that one will be a refuge for them. But in the midst of this, uh, your old buddy, Jeff Sessions, I think he was a client of yours or something once, wasn't he? Johnny Weaver and I put him in the U.S. Senate with a lot of help from the good people of Alabama back in 1996. <laughs> I know him well. Yeah. And I'm sure the good people of Alabama will appreciate the nod you just gave them. But he is back, back home after a tumultuous tenure as attorney general in which the president of the United States basically accused him of being stupid, of betraying him, of being uh, an operative for the dark forces and so on. Now he's back running for the Senate in Alabama. And here is the ad that he ran. Jeff Sessions here. I approve this ad. When I left President Trump's cabinet, did I write a tell-all book? No. Did I go on CNN and attack the president? Nope. Have I said a cross word about our president? Not one time. And I'll tell you why. First, that would be dishonorable. I was there to serve his agenda, not mine. Second, the president's doing a great job for America and Alabama, and he has my strong support. <laughs> okay, so this is why this is why you're not going to see 20 Republican senators once impeachment comes to the Senate, as I think at this point it's it's preordained that it is based on the evidence that we've seen. They they're scared of him. Jeff Sessions is doing what he's doing uh, because he knows that if John, if Donald Trump fires an acid tweet his way, he can lose a very competitive. A Republican primary, uh, and he's probably the strongest candidate still in Alabama against Doug Jones, the the accidental incumbent uh, senator who I respect a lot, but who is running an uphill fight. So, what makes you think that this party, 
is not going to do a full Jeff Sessions when it comes to uh, in, when it comes to, to hearing the evidence. <laughs> you love to grind this organ. Um, first of all, when the Republican Revolution happens, it ain't going to start in Alabama. I can guarantee you that, my friend. Uh, Sessions is reflecting the reality of Republican uh, primary politics, particularly in the southern states where Trump is very powerful. So, you know, dog bites cat. That said, I'm a little disappointed yeah, but Mike, in him. Well, Republican well, primary. Hang on, let me. Republican primary. Okay. Go ahead. I'm no, sorry. No. I'm all wound up here. What, what I've said. What I've said from the beginning is as this thing develops and if it gets worse, there is a chance because quietly in the Senate, there's a lot of private angst about Trump. And as it starts looking as a choice between death by primary, which is the politics of what we just heard from Sessions, or death by general election, some may shake loose. Am I predicting it will happen? No. Am I saying it's totally impossible, it's over, um, it, it's done, take a victory parade, Republicans are the Antichrist in the Senate? I'm not saying that either. We'll see. I think there's a slim chance. Now, just for yeah. irony's sake, I want to do the hacks on tap time timetable because when we when we pulled out that sessions ad i pulled out one of the old spots i did for him when he got elected in 96 listen to what he was selling then and it does give you an idea of how the republican audience these guys are playing to has changed i believe in fundamental values i believe there is truth i believe there are principles which are unchanging for senate jeff sessions so i think the honesty thing has been put on ice <laughs> because if you watch Trump, uh, honesty is no no longer clearly the attribute in the Republican Party. It, it is it is remarkable, really, how how far we've traveled and how much you know. You talk about private angst, and I don't doubt that there is a lot of private angst. The question is, does anybody convert their private angst into public acts? And you're right that they only have to fear a primary, but there aren't that many places where there are general elections anymore, even in the United States Senate. And that's the issue, both in the House and the Senate. People only fear primaries in their right. own parties. Trump right. understands that. He commands the Republican base, and therefore he is holding uh, holding a bunch of these guys by, I'll say the short hairs for purposes of podcast, but I think he's grabbing something else. Well, I look, I, the, the grip is there. The fear is there. It, it, we're not asking these guys, as I often say, to land on Anzio Beach, but apparently right now it's too much. We're seeing. My, my little side clock on it is will more Republicans defect than Democrats defected on Clinton yeah. because tribal loyalty was around then. But some did. The, yes, the, it was, yeah. yeah. So, you know, uh, even that standard, uh, we we have some work to do. But I don't know. We're, we're see. We're see. Um, you know, the I, public I was just thinking about ahead. this. I was just, th I was just thinking about this. Do you think um, when I said that thing before about grabbing, you know, grabbing, do you think there's some equivalent of the Access Hollywood tape where Trump is bragging in private that these Republican members of Congress, uh, when you're a star, they let you grab them by their private parts? Well, I, I don't really want to take this family podcast down the kind of pornographic uh, <laughs> themes that you're advancing here, David. We have children listening. That would be the fact. If, if we were to hear the new Nixon tapes of the Trump White House and vulgarities like that applied to the wimpiness of the Republicans, spoken by the president, would not surprise me at all. But wait a minute. Let's talk about what's going to start tomorrow, the public show, the House hearings. I do not believe this is an issue that is going to completely transfix the country, but I, I think these hearings are going to help the Democratic cause. They've got some very compelling people talking, old pros. I think they're going to raise the stakes a little to help people understand 
why what might look to a lot of voters like typical politics, trying to get dirt on your opponent, you know, they all do it, blah, blah, blah. They're going to see horrified career people. And if you look at, like, Bill Taylor's background, 101st Airborne Division, yeah. you know, Lieutenant Colonel Vineman, these, yeah. these are patriots, and they're going to be out there in the open, and they're going to be telling this story, which is a pretty simple but damning story. So I, I think the Democrats are going to score some points at these hearings. Yeah, no, I think, look, I think this is very tricky for the Republicans because some of these witnesses are sort of not, uh, no pun intended, unimpeachable (laughs) witnesses. I think the strategy is going to be less about the witnesses and more about trying to tell, you know, crazy different stories about conspiracy theories and, you know, Hunter Biden and and so on, anything but the substance, because the substance is damning. It's very damning. And uh, you see, you know, when you – I watched uh, Senator Kennedy from uh, Louisiana on on the tube over the weekend trying to explain, you know, the difference between uh, this kind of quid pro quo and that kind of quid pro quo. And it was like watching Cirque du Soleil, you know, people sort of wrapping themselves into – balls of in unnatural ways. Um, so I, I think that they're going to have to try and create a diversion. And at the end of the day, their goal is not uh, to win a trial of fact. It's to try and partisanize this as much as possible, make it impossible for Republicans to stray on the president, get it over with, and move on to the election. Yeah, the oldest trick of any defense lawyer when you know the facts is put the trial on trial. And so it's going to be a lot of that and a lot of smoke. But I don't know. I think these witnesses, their biographies are compelling. I think they'll help punch it through. I don't think this is going to be the swing voter deal of the whole election. But I think it is going to help the Dems. And I think it's going to box the president in because he's going to be forced to talk about nothing else. And he can weave these conspiracy theories that they're all under mind control by the deep state. And that'll play with yeah, his uh, yesterday it was that yesterday it was that the uh, transcripts that were released by the committee doctored. were doctored yeah transcripts yeah, which I think even the Republicans a, on the committee didn't support so yeah but he, my it's, point it's is he's be, fueling it's going to be crazy town he's going to fuel his cul-de-sac which will be great you know crazy chow for them but it's not going to move the needle from the election which he desperately has to do that's going to be down to the referendum on the Democrat the where it could really hurt him is it contributes to this sense of utter chaos around him. Agreed. And that, I think, is the great vulnerability here. You know, sadly, you see these polls where people say, well, most presidents do what he did. Most presidents don't do what he did. I don't think any other president has done uh, what he did. That's what people think. But I think they also are uncomfortable with the chaos and the picture of a president who's kind of, you know, out of control. And I think that will... That 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 could hurt him. This is the first time to shamelessly add a last word to the last word where we're going to see professionals aghast at the circus of the White House on television as opposed to hear about it or read about it in thoughtful print stories and elite newspapers. We're, we're going to see real deal people, many of whom have worn the uniform and served the country, describing a playpen running the shop. And I think that's going to be compelling to people and it's going to raise the stakes, the reasons to be worried about the, the reality show that, you know, we've got going on inside the White House. Now, big news, new entrance. It looks like Mike Bloomberg is turning the multi-billion dollar turret toward the race. And Deval Patrick, your old running buddy from Massachusetts, is looking at it as well. Who'd have thought that? Middle of November, heading down the final stretch toward the Iowa caucuses. And we've got 
new horses on the track. You know, everybody is pondering what does the Bloomberg thing mean? And there's uh, one interpretation is that it was a vote of no confidence in Joe Biden. He didn't get in Bloomberg because Biden was taking up too much space. Now he is getting in. And it's fueling that sense that maybe Biden can't go uh, the distance. Uh, Biden was dismissive. Let's listen to that. I welcome in the race. Michael's a solid guy, and let's see where it goes. I have no no problem with him getting in the race. Yeah, you can feel the love there. But, you know, I'll tell you, there's a silver lining for Biden, because you're right, this is all a reflection of people, particularly in the donor class, losing faith in him. But I saw that town hall. We're going to talk about it. He was pretty good. His expectations are so low now that, you know, Biden's starting to have a potential comeback narrative if he can just get some votes. I don't think it was the worst thing for Joe. Yeah, you're right. He has done a good job of lowering expectations, and <laughs> and he is and he is becoming more active now. And I agree, there could be another turn of the wheel here. The opposite of the silver lining is the gold that it may cost him from donors who would have given to a super PAC and na- now may hold back, thinking, "Let's see where this Bloomberg thing goes." And Biden desperately needs to raise money. That's his biggest yeah. problem right now is that he is he is short on cash, and he needs the super fund to go. The donor market, yeah, that's it. They're nervous. They think Biden may be too rickety to lead the wagon train the whole way. Warren may be too left. Buttigieg too young. Is America ready for a gay person? And so there is this hand wringing and teeth gnashing that is sort of endemic to the Democratic breed, Democratic Party breed. But this is in part an answer to that. The question is, in the real world. What are the chances uh, for these candidates? Bloomberg's theory is completely untested yeah. in modern history. Which well, it's is, been tested. You can skip but the first four races. Go ahead. Right, and and found wanting. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree with you. I I think this is donor panic driven. Rich donors and rich donors are the same everywhere. They all want the same campaign. You start thirty points ahead and you finish thirty points ahead. So it's you know an easy trot. And they're they're not having that. They're seeing the risks that some of these candidates present. So they're trying to conjure up a, a, a donor situation. But to your point about Bloomberg, nobody's ever done the late start before. And I guess the theory is if Biden crashes in Iowa and New Hampshire, they can pop up and say, and, you know, disclosure, I like Bloomberg. I think he'd be a good president. I've done some work for Bloomberg's PAC in the past. They're my friends. But the idea you can jumpstart this thing after the first four, particularly Iowa and South Carolina, um, and the second thing that's surprising me is where's any message about why he ought to be president? It's all process. I don't think there's going to be a lot of Mike Bloomberg image left by the time this is over because it's all going to be pummeling uh, with no offense from him. And in South Carolina, you can't not go there in the modern Democratic Party because the subtext is it's the first party with strong African-American participation, first primary. You can't take a walk on that mm-hmm. because you say you can't get enough storefront headquarters open. So I have to admit, I don't get it, but they do have the resources to make a pitch. And I guess they will. If, if, if he actually runs in the yeah, end, I'm no, still not I, sure. That, that will go under the... That will go in the category of understatements of the year. They have the resources. <laughs> the man has $52 billion, and he's going to spend a bunch of it. I, I would expect he'd spend a billion dollars. I think that you're going to see – I mean, we got out of the business way too That's what soon, I'm thinking, Murphy. Yeah. I think he is going to spend untold amounts of money in those in those Super Tuesday states, including California and New York, that he will be on for – 
you know, 20,000 or more gross rating points over the 10 weeks before that primary. And his bet is that Biden will have collapsed. You know, the flaw and that he will be the center left candidate. The flaw with the theory is that Biden's base is among uh, non-college educated white voters and African-American voters, neither of which are bases for Mike Bloomberg. So I don't know how this thing pencils out. And I'll tell you something else. Well, also, just a uh, quick that, Buttigieg, that's who he's a real threat to. Yes, uh, that's where I was yeah. going. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And Buttigieg isn't going anywhere unless Bloomberg can start beating him. And it's hard to win a baseball game when you suit up in the sixth inning. Yeah, but, you know, this is what's this is what I find curious about his decision to skip New Hampshire, because Buttigieg is surging right now in Iowa. And by the way, I got to send you some, uh, you know, in, in full disclosure, the firm that I sold 10 years ago is doing his ads. Uh, and so I know those guys well. But I looked at a reel of the ads he's been running now. He's been on for 11 weeks. Yep. It's not a mystery as to why he's moving right, in Iowa. Right. It is a very coherent set of ads. You know, he has basically seized this unity theme, this community theme, you know, as opposed to the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders fight theme. And um, it is selling yep. in uh, in Iowa. And it's coordinated with the things he's saying uh, on the stage, but he could do very well in Iowa. He could finish second. He could finish first. I agree. If he does, he goes roaring into New Hampshire, and with a primary in which independent voters, moderate Republican voters, can cross over and vote in the Democratic primary, he could do very well there. There was just a Quinnipiac poll that showed mm-hmm. basically a four-way tie: Biden in the lead, closely followed by Warren, Buttigieg, and Sanders. So. Bloomberg could do well in a state like New Hampshire because of those independent voters, because of those moderate Republican voters. I suppose he's skipping it because then he would be obligated to go into South Carolina, yeah, but I don't think where he would do very poorly. You can't have that pass, I think. Uh, if I were them, I'd never go to Iowa, but I would try the Bloomberg mugging in New Hampshire. It's tailor-made for him and then get something going. What's going to happen instead is they're out on a process argument. Um, he's, you know, he's going to pull 5% or something in a national poll. So the media will start to say, ah, nobody wants him. And then he's going to get so beat up that restart, even if you have all those points. Look, I, I know a lot about spending a hundred million dollars on presidential campaigns <laughs> and primaries when the voters, when what you're selling with, you know, all the wonderful things about it ain't what the voters are looking for. And there's very little evidence right now to suggest the Bloomberg that's currently perceived is what they're looking for. Now, I think they could make a hell of an effort, and New Hampshire is the place to do it. But if they pass on that, whatever's left of Bloomberg by the end, no matter how many GRPs he has, um, I think it's an uphill sell. But, you know, they, they, they can try. And I agree with Buttigieg. He, he's the guy running the table now. I think we both agree that finally, and we've been talking about it on this podcast for ages since episode like two, this Medicare for all thing is a wedge issue, not only in the general election, but in the Democratic primary. And they're finally drawing that line. And for the first time in her campaign, she's getting boxed in a little bit and is losing some velocity. She is. And Medicare for all has become a uh, long, dark tunnel for her. And, and she's going to have to find a way out of it. But here, the sign that Pete is is moving. You know, I've said this before here and elsewhere, and uh, Mario Cuomo once said, the only place people shoot backwards is in cowboy movies. <laughs> in 
political campaigns. They always shoot at the people who are ahead of them. Uh, this weekend, Amy Klobuchar, who is competing with Pete for that sort of moderate and and moderate in in approach and in uh, policy uh, lane was on television, and she was asked about him. She had a pretty acid response. Let's listen to that. Of the women on the stage, I'm focusing here on my fellow women senators, of Senator Harris, Senator Warren, and myself. Do I think that we would be standing on that stage if we had the experience that he had? No, I don't. Maybe we're held to a different standard. Ooh, that yeah. is a... That's the roar of a candidate who just got a report from her treasurer. They're having trouble making payroll. That's frustration bubbling she's to gotta the top. Get, she's got to get by. She's got to get by Buttigieg in uh, in Iowa, and Iowa is everything to her. But there, the you know the the substance of it. Um, you know, I bet you there were a lot of women who nodded their heads about that. Um, the following day, uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren took a pretty tough shot at Biden for calling her angry, saying that that, you know, suggesting that's the kind of thing that people say about women. So this thing is getting, it's getting more intense, man. Yeah. I think uh, this is, this is, um, it's just the beginning and it portends for next week, a, I think a very uh, sparky debate, interesting debate. You know, I thought uh, Biden was, was pretty good at the town hall last night because he went back at her. You know, she said he ought to be in the Republican primary. Warren did. And he hit Biden hit back with the old elitist professor who's going to tell you how to, you know, throw your union health care card in the garbage can and yeah. have a complicated scheme. So I thought Biden Biden's finally on the offense. and He's doing a little better. Yeah. No, he is. I mean, he was uh, I thought he was he was good in the yeah, town me too. hall. There's still always that moment every time he begins to speak of <laughs> apprehension about how the whole thing's going to turn out. And there are times in the middle of when he's speaking when you wonder where he's going. Yeah, he's not uh, Mr. Straight he Line. Did, <laughs> he gets off no, the highway. He's not. He's not. Hey, here's and, a... and those town hall meetings are, are useful, actually, because uh, they you can talk as long as you want. So he can meander around and then land and doesn't have to worry about the clock. We shouldn't leave this whole Democratic Party uh, discussion, yeah. though, without talking. We, we talked about Bloomberg's theory of the case. We didn't talk about Deval Patrick. But right before we go and to we that, because we should because of his Boston, New Hampshire connection, just a point on this Amy thing. I was an early booster because I see her as a competitive candidate to beat Trump, and she's not one of the real liberals. But there's been this mean Amy pattern. There was the New York Times story where apparently she was chewing Cory Booker's ear off on the Senate floor about how mad she was about Buttigieg's attention. There's a soundbite we just played. Look, if there was a female candidate who was a veteran, who had been a successful mayor, uh, who had Pete's communication skills and was generationally new and had managed to go out and raise a lot more money than A.B. Klobuchar without any Senate leverage power to raise it with, I think that can that female candidate would be totally on the stage and would be doing as well as Pete. So Amy's problem is she's been a bad competitor. So if she wants to be bitter, she can go back to Nimrod, Minnesota, and complain from there. I, I, I don't like the, the, the this <laughs> wow, new Amy. Harsh. The other Amy was better. There is a town called Nimrod, Minnesota, by the way. So I didn't even make that up. And if there isn't, you'll probably create one. Found one, By yeah. the time this podcast. Yeah. But listen, uh, just let me say a word for her. I actually think she got a slow start in this campaign. She, along with Buttigieg, were the stars of the, was a star of the last debate. Uh, she's finally found her voice, and the question is whether she's found it uh, too late. This is not the time 
to disparage, although she may feel like she can ignite some support by making that point. But I agree with you. Um, she should keep eyes forward here yeah. and stick to the message that was so strong in that in that debate. So Duvall, Duvall. you know, he uh, I know it's surprising. And we don't know as we sit here whether he'll actually take the next step. He has to file by Friday in New Hampshire, as we mentioned. New Hampshire is one of the reasons why he probably thinks he can pull this off. He's not well known. He's not well funded. So he's sort of the anti-Bloomberg in that regard. He is an exceptional campaigner. I worked with him in 2006 when he ran for governor. He was at 3% when he started in that race. The Democratic establishment was dead set against him. He went town to town and he pulled off an extraordinary upset. He's, he's very, very gifted. His idea, obviously, is that he can go into New Hampshire and he can uh, kind of overturn the apple cart there, finish well, well enough to slingshot into South Carolina, where 60% of the right. vote is African American. And he probably, and, and in this sense, I think he's threatening to two candidates. One is, if Pete goes to New Hampshire, Deval will compete with him for some of the votes that Pete is counting on. If, uh, I mean, if Pete goes to New Hampshire with momentum, uh, if Biden is counting on South Carolina, an energized Deval Patrick candidacy, is a threat for those African-American votes that Biden is counting on. Deval Patrick has the ability to go into those African-American churches and really connect with uh, some of these voters who are strongly for Biden, in part because of his partnership with Barack Obama. Well, Deval Patrick can claim that as well. Having said all of that, yeah, I don't know where the funding comes from. I don't know where right. the organization comes from. I think I, I thought he'd be a very strong candidate at the beginning of the race. Going in now, you know, he runs the ra uh, the risk of being sort of the Rosie Ruiz of this election. Remember Rosie Ruiz? She was the woman who jumped on the tee during the Boston Marathon oh, at right, like mile yeah. twenty, yeah, yeah, and rode it to the finish line and then ran in and uh, ultimately got found yeah, out. You know, he, um, you know, it's a good analogy because he he's trying to hack it now. He's basically saying because I'm from the Boston media market. I can go pop New Hampshire and roll into the African-American votes in the South. I think the potential fatal flaw in that beautiful plan, which looks good on paper, is I doubt he has any – I don't think he has nearly as much in New Hampshire from his old days as governor of Massachusetts that he might think he does. So the first poll that comes out and shows him fifth in New Hampshire, nobody cares because his story from the Boston media market is so old. Then what little money he can will drive up because he'll be pitching this plan to donors, and it'll be tough. So, yeah, if he can – if he can get top three and be the big upset story in New Hampshire, preferably top two, he could bounce into real contention. So high risk, high reward. We'll see. I think he probably is overestimating his chances there. But, you know, we'll know a lot more about that in about eight weeks if he runs. So that that was the tactics, the, just the last word on the message. My, my guess is that he will – and this is why he's competition for Judge. He's going to go for that unity, community message – and he is very, very good at delivering that message. It was one I heard many times in Massachusetts. So it's something to keep an eye on. But uphill for both the new entrants. So I want to get to our mailbag. A lot of good questions there. But before we do, we've got 
a important message from our friends at Policy Genius. You know, David, as you well know, I've got several mob-connected no-show jobs, and I was online with one of them because I got an email that it's the season right now. This is actually true, the season to elect benefits through your workplace, your annual election. So most people know open enrollment is a decision time for your health care coverage, but it's also the perfect moment to take a look and reassess your life insurance needs. To properly provide for their families, most people need 10 times the life insurance that they get through their jobs, which means your employer life insurance may be leaving you underinsured. That's where our friends at Policy Genius can help you out. And look, Murphy knows a lot about making money off of elections, so this is an opportunity for you to save some money and get the policy that you need. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for a life insurance plan that's not tied to your job. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. And once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. The life insurance you buy through Policy Genius stays with you even if you leave your job. And, and Murphy, Policy Genius doesn't just make it easy to get life insurance. They can also help you find the right home and auto insurance and disability insurance, too. It's incredible. So what I say, don't be a policy moron. Be a policy genius. Check them out. When you're looking at your workplace benefits this month, make sure to triple-check everything at policygenius.com to get quotes and apply in minutes. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Okay, that that's that. Now on to the mailbag. If you have a mailbag question for us, you can send it to our highly creative uh, special mailbox email account, hacksontap at gmail.com. That's hacksontap at gmail.com. And let's go to question number one. Murphy Andrew asks, how does Trump affect down-ballot races? I'm seeing traditional red districts in California that voted for Clinton in 16, but also voted for Republicans in down-ballot races. Will four years of Trump drive more of those voters into the blue side down-ballot, or are these districts so well-informed and savvy that they can split their tickets like this in perpetuity? Well, I'm still looking for particularly savvy uh, districts there, Andrew. I, I think the historical trend has always been the top-ballot race, the presidency in a big turnout presidential year, does have an effect on ballot. If you do badly, the president's party tends to be punished. If you do well and there's a momentum surge or a turnout surge behind a a, a president of one party, that has the same effect on the ballot. So you always have some local races where the down-ballot candidate has a particular identity or a weak opponent or something and can maybe buck the overall trend by a couple of points. But generally, the presidential race does set the pick. And, you know, we've seen that even in some of the off-year elections where lately Republicans have had a rough time. It's been pretty bad even down the ballot in those. Yeah, we should point out that a lot of these districts are uh, not in California, which has a different system. But, you know, districts are gerrymandered. People are self-sorting. So when you get down to these district-level elections, one party or the other tends to have uh, an advantage. And where it's close, you know, turnout matters. If he brings a large turnout out in these districts, that could be helpful there. So, Yeah, that's right. But when in doubt, the biggest factor in a big complicated salad of factors is going to be the presidential race for most down-ballot places. Now, X, a question to you from Aza. My question is super premature, seeing that we're still months away from Iowa. Well, not that many months, Asia. It's a good question. Do you think there's any chance that the Democratic nominee will consider running on a unity ticket? 
In particular, would a moderately conservative running mate help a Sanders or Warren ticket shift the conversation away from anti-leftist fear-mongering, all right, I think I know where you are on this thing, and toward a bipartisan message about Trump's unique unfitness for office. So what do you think? Shotgun marriage between the progressives and a moderate? So it's interesting, Asa. I saw this question. I was thinking I was in Arizona last week, and uh, I sat with Cindy McCain, and we talked about the vice presidential choice in 2008 and the fact that John McCain really wanted to pick Joe Lieberman to uh, signal a kind of national unity message, uh, Joe Lieberman being a Democrat who he, to whom he was close, shared views on national security issues, uh, and was told that he couldn't get that candidate through the convention because of uh, his positions on issues like choice and climate change. I don't know what would happen if a can First of all, I don't think Sanders and Warren are likely to uh, make such a choice because their theory of the case is that uh, if you energize the democratic base and with populist uh, economics reach in to some of the trump base that you can you can win and i don 't think that they 're running on a kind of communitarian uh, platform. Biden, on the other hand, you know that would be a more interesting uh, strategy, but he is uh, i think he is going if he were to be the nominee or if Buddha judge were to be the nominee. There would be a, a bit of uh, unrest among the left, and they would want to be reassured. I'm not sure that going the fusion route be the answer. So I, in these very polarized times, I don't see this as a likely uh, scenario. It's an interesting notion to play with, but it seems unlikely to me. What do you think, Marshall? Oh, it's an idea I don't really like. Is I'll tell you why. Unity tickets always really become in subtext about disunity because they don't agree on anything, and the press will constantly talk about you know, how can they ever get along? So, Bernie, if you're the vice president, you can't be for any of your stuff because the nominee isn't. And it becomes about differences. All the ticket balancing stuff in the modern era tends to overthink the appeal of the VP. All the VP really is is a canvas upon which voters can look at the decision-making qualities of the president or the nominee. The smartest guy to ever deal with this was Clinton, who instead of balancing the ticket by picking a liberal Northeasterner or something, understood that as a younger Southern white Protestant, he was going to sell generational change and good DLC moderatism, which worked, by the way. He won. So what did he do? He picked a worse version of himself to sell the category of his kind of candidacy. He picked Al Gore, who was another generational Southern white Protestant moderate. So when in doubt, pick yourself and have no daylight. And one of these fusion things, there's a reason they call it cold fusion. doesn't work. <laughs> there are other models. Obviously, uh, Obama picked Biden, who was not a carbon copy uh, of himself. But I, I take your point. You know, an interesting thing would be, you, you've heard, you know, uh, Admiral McRaven uh, has been outspoken. And, you know, what if someone who was um, untested in the national security realm, picked someone who was, uh, you know, I, that, that's been mentioned as well. I think that's also unlikely, but maybe more likely than, than a fusion ticket. Yeah, I would advise candidates not to think too much and double down on a winning category. And uh, anyway, we will see. My guess is they're, they're do the overthink thing because they almost always do. Uh, but we'll find out. So I think we have one more question near to our hearts. So from Thomas, Thomas says, are American voters so dumb that they need expensive TV ads to make up their minds who to vote for? Where does where, do, where does <laughs> well, all that donation money go? How is it spent? Murphy, you are uniquely qualified 
to oh, yeah, uh, right. answer that question because no, you've far spent less a lot of, the, of money in your time. Yeah, yeah, the fantasy cheap negative attack here from my friend Axelrod and the Democratic tradition. <laughs> Look, communication is important because in a campaign, most of the whole deal boils down to a battle of new information. You're telling your story about you, you're telling your story about them, and they're doing the same in reverse. So it's not just TV ads. It's digital, it's it's mail, it's phone. It's all the ways that campaigns do what we call voter contact. And it's important. It's not that American voters are so dumb. It's that they crave information, and TV ads are still an effective way to do it. Now, you know, here's a quick question. You ever get a letter from McDonald's? No. You you see television ads or digital or signage or whatever. So we're in a culture where we market that way, and TV ads and digital and other paid media is one of the few things a candidate has that's unfiltered where they can they can tell their message. Now, not always for good. Um, people generally don't like those ads, but they do, you know, assume the message. There's a great old joke in advertising circles about a market researcher was in a supermarket and went up to a consumer and he asked her, uh, she was shopping there, do you buy Crest toothpaste because of our TV ads? And the shopper got irate and told the market researcher, no, no, I'm not Pavlog's dog. I'm not manipulated by your stupid jingles and your stupid expensive TV ads. You waste all that money. That has nothing to do with my decision. I buy Colgate because I get 23% fewer cavities with MFP fluoride. So <laughs> as long as it's about pushing out new ideas, stuff that TV stations or digital providers or you know, the post office charges money for uh, is going to be useful to campaigns. One postscript to this is I agree with everything you said. Um, it is interesting how media works post the selection of nominees and prior. We did a lot of – we shifted a lot of budget in 2012 from the fall to the spring on the theory we could raise money back to uh, mm-hmm. to to, to – patch the uh, fall by because by the time you get to the fall television coverage of the race is so ubiquitous yep. that it's hard to deliver new information and people tend to default to the, the to the uh, uh, to the news that they see in other sources that are pummeling them rather than ads you still can sort of micro target people uh, you know on cable TV and with digital who are still persuadable and haven't been paying much attention. But uh, the ads tend to be more useful, I think, earlier in the race. And and certainly I, I mentioned earlier when you're a new candidate introducing yourself, I mentioned the Buttigieg example in Iowa. That can be very, very useful. Yeah, cause you, so that's where having money early can be really helpful. Yeah, you get that feedback loop where the early move, money moves the polls. The polls makes the media show up to cover you, and then you get the free thing, and it becomes a feedback loop. You know, Thomas had one other part to his question we ought to touch on. Can a great candidate with a good baseball cap and a website get elected? You know, for example, and he goes into Trump. Trump didn't spend that much in advertising, which is true. But Trump was what we out here in Hollywood call a pre-aware title. That's why you see movies about comic books that people already know about. You don't need as much money for TV advertising. That's why they make so many sequels. A lot cheaper to open Iron Man 6 because people know what it is than the amazing Axelrod. So you have to go, you know, fool them with a lot of hey, TV ads. To that sounds like a good that, – that, <laughs> that sounds like a hit to me. Yeah, man. yeah. Well, Abe for Goat yeah, is available. No, you're, you're, um, you're, yeah, thank you. <laughs> the other thing is that um, – you know, Trump's great inspiration was that if you light yourself on fire every day that you'll get covered on cable TV. And it I works. don't know 
whether that he yeah he was uniquely you know he he lives in an asbestos suit and <laughs> uh enjoys lighting himself on fire i'm not sure that that model works for uh for everyone but uh so i i don't I, he he may be the exception that proves the rule but that thing about you know he was lucky because if you're on nbc primetime for 10 years and even if all you're doing is sitting in a fake cardboard boardroom being in charge and you know firing gilbert godfried you look like the in charge guy and that persona, which he didn't have to pay a nickel for, he got paid to create, was an incre- it was the right thing at the moment. So anyway, be- being famous helps and can bend the rules of TV. Last call. All right, I'll start with my last call, which is a little shout-out to the good uh, bishops of my church. They elected the first Hispanic uh, president, Jose Gomez, who's the uh, bishop right here in Los Angeles, who has been a hero on defending immigrants from persecution, and I like to see the church, which I don't always agree with on some issues, but on this one, stand up for the weak and social justice, um, because it is a tragedy the way we're we're treating immigrants to this country. Even people who fought under our flag uh, are now being deported. It's crazy, and three cheers to the Catholic Church for taking a stand with a very important symbolic move with Bishop Gomez. An appropriate last call on the day that the Supreme Court is hearing the uh, DACA yep. case. So good on you. I want to call out, a, a, I, I saw the other day a video that was done by a candidate who's running for the Senate in South Carolina against Lindsey Graham. Jamie Harrison used to be the Democratic chair down there. And this ad was animated, so it's hard to exactly picture it on a podcast. But the track itself was from a speech that he had made. And uh, the speech to me was really, really good. It's what powers the ad. The visual uh, was good. But the, take a listen to this. I went to a rural county in South Carolina, but I went down an old dirt road, shotgun house, and I went knocking on door. Old African-American man came to the door. And he said, son, who are you and what you want? I said, sir, I'm Jamie Harris. He looked at me and he said, okay, what do you want? I said, sir, this is the most consequential election. And he said, son, let me tell you something. He said, you see that road that you you, re- you drove up on? I said, yes, sir. He said, what kind of road is that? He said, it's a dirt road. He said, son, that was a dirt road when Ronald Reagan was president, when both of the Bushes were president. It was a dirt road when Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were president. Son, that's still a goddamn dirt road. And until either a Democrat or a Republican paints my road, I don't want to deal with any of them. He shut his door. Now, a little hurt. But then I started thinking about it. The most important thing to this man was his dirt road. And he'd heard all the political speeches, people talking about it, doing this and that, but nobody had still paved his road. That road is symbolic for so many things for so many of us across the state. It might not be a dirt road for the people in Allendale, but it may be schools. Might not be a dirt road for, for the people in Bamberg, could be their hospital. That dirt road is a hardship that so many of us are suffering with across the state. I remember a time when senators helped the people they represented. I want to bring the spirit of helping back. We have to rebuild the trust of those people. And that's why I am running for the United States Senate. 
So that's damn good messaging. Yeah, no, I, I thought I was taken by. He's it. talented, and I'm looking forward to the FEC fine we're going to get for the in kind contribution here. We're going to have to send him an invoice. Uh, it's good, and if I know Lindsey Graham, uh-huh. he'll be on a bulldozer heading for that road tomorrow. He is a fast mover. So, uh, but no, <laughs> no, that that's going to go viral. And it's going to raise him some money. Tip O'Neill said all politics are local. If you're running in a state where uh, Donald Trump's going to run away with the state, you want to localize the race. Um, I thought it was done uh, really, really well. Yeah, I've uh, seen it. In AL it Media in out of Chicago did that. Uh, I know those guys. I didn't know they had done this ad until after, but really, really good. All right, brother. Well, well there'll be a few developments between now and we see each other again. We will, but finally, a few good words. It, not my favorite ex-president, but a patriot in his day, Jimmy Carter, who's uh, yes. uh, went under the knife for a tough operation. But he's a tough guy. He's beat cancer, so we wish him well. Our hopes and prayers uh, to him and the Carter family. We'll see you next week. Big Democratic debate. Let's convene after mm-hmm. and see who's standing and who's not. Absolutely. We're tuned in. That'll be next Wednesday night. So Hacks instead of Tuesday will be next Thursday with our post-debate spectacular and then off to Thanksgiving. So let's uh, let's talk then. It'll be an interesting debate. I'm looking forward to insults and a thrown bar stool. <laughs> you mean on the show or in the debate? <laughs> debate. We don't do that. <laughs> All right, pal. See you. See you.